I think law can be really beautiful. It's not really contracts, torts, con law, crimpro. It's, it's framing the issue, which is like the very fundamental of what law is. Hey there, this is Liz Lash, and you're listening to Entering the Bar. Us lawyers may have passed the bar, but at the end of the day, we often find ourselves entering the bar. And you're listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash. And today on the show, we have Alex Pergamon. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Glad you. to be here. Glad to have you here. So, Alex, tell me a little bit about where you work. I'm a law clerk for the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Impressive. Uh, it's a, a federal appeals court that has a pretty specific jurisdiction. Hmm. We do appeals on basically anything that has anything to do with patents. Appeals from district courts, appeals from the Patent um, Trial and Appeal Board, and from the Court of Appeals, <laughs> and for the, the, the International Trade Commission. Um, and then we do a few other little limited parts of jurisdiction where we have, um, we hear some takings cases, we hear some government employment cases, veterans cases, and uh, a few other little tiny pieces of jurisdiction like uh, trade cases and um, government contract board appeals. Wow. So you there's a lot of work to be done, sounds like. There is. Wow. Wow. For those lawyers or, excuse me, listeners who, uh, who are not lawyers, what's a takings case? A takings case is a situation where the government takes possession mm-hmm. or requires certain things to be done with a piece of property, mm-hmm. usually property, that the, where the owners of the property are saying the government is taking their property without due process. Uh-huh. Eminent domain stuff is is kind of the most well-known example. Uh, yes. It's when yes. the government takes a piece of property uh-huh. for the public good in order to develop it in, in mm-hmm. one way or another. One of the things that we've, that we've had, a, had a, a several of was um, rails to trails cases where there were, there used to be train tracks going th- throughout the country all over the place. Sure. Yeah. And the, the government would take those um, under a congressional act, took those properties and made trails out of them for bicycling and for um, walking and biking. Right. And right. the landowner sued the government saying, you're taking those pieces of land deprived us of our, of our property. So those are very important cases that you're looking at and reviewing and and, you know, we were just chatting a little bit before the recording. And I think you said to me that you do an incredible amount of writing in your job. And how much do you write a month? Typically, my judge hears when he's sitting uh, eight to 10 cases a month. For each of those cases, my job is to help the judge prepare for those cases, to mm-hmm. hear those cases. Almost all of our cases are appeals. So there's a decision below by another group of judges or by another judge. Mm -hmm. So I read the decision and I read the briefs that come in. So we're in appellate court. There are no witnesses. There's no new evidence introduced. For the most part, it is straight up writing. One party will write, the court below got it wrong. The other party will say, no, the court below got it right. The other party will say, no, you're totally wrong. The court got it it wrong. (laughs) And uh, I'll end up reading those and then preparing a memo for my judge for each case, Uh Um, laying out the main arguments, laying out which way I think which party has the the stronger argument, Mm -hmm. 
and including any other information that I think might be relevant that the parties either missed or case law that the parties haven't researched. Interesting. Um, so that usually goes uh, between 10 and 15 pages each case. Wow. So it ends up being about between 80 and 120 pages a month when we're sitting. So so you could easily participate in the NaNoWriMo, right? <laughs> what's what's NaNoWriMo? <laughs> oh, okay. So, you know, if, if you do a lot of writing, creative writing, they have this. I think it's like maybe November or there's a particular month in the year where it's like you it's like you have a goal of a certain number of pages that you have to write during the month and you make a commitment to write those number of pages and it's like some crazy amount. So people are just writing, writing, writing for an entire month and you, it sounds like you could easily, you know, satisfy that. It sounds <laughs> like, great, even like great training. Yeah. <laughs> I know that one of the things that I tried to do a couple of times when I've had like writer's block mm -hmm. is um, the artist's way kind of idea. Oh, yeah. Um, which are like morning papers, mm -hmm. which is like you wake up in the morning and you write three pages without editing and knowing that you're not going to share them with anybody. Right. And I, I thought that was a beautiful process. It, it is a beautiful process. In fact, in keeping with the theme, my mother, who is an artist, actually introduced me to the artist way. And she used it and she in kept it herself. And in fact, that sounds like it works very well with, could say, not outside interests, but other interests, which is that you're also a very creative person, right? And you do not just legal writing, but also other types of creative ventures. Absolutely. And what, what are some of those other creative ventures that you find yourself doing? I've done, I've done a lot of different things. The common theme through all of them is improvisation. Improvisation and collaboration are the two kind of touchstones for me. I've done... The thing that I'm, that I'm most invested in right now is improvisational music, community-made improvisational music. And I do that through two entities. One is after-school activities, after-school orchestra. Uh, after-school activities is a weekly improvised music night mm -hmm. with um, musicians from Jersey City and New York. Each week is a new theme or a new leader. And the goal is to create music on stage in front of people. So mm -hmm. as contrasted with performing music, it's creating music that's never been heard before and probably won't be heard again. Right. <laughs> um, so that's one big part of things. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other, the other entity that I do that with is mm -hmm. um, a band called Huge, which is huge. Um, yeah, huge. <laughs> uh, it's Y U U G E. My bandmate Nick Aflito and I, and uh, we also play with Jerry Ramos and Ariel Gudry and a few other folks. Yeah, we had we had an album that we recorded mostly on Trump's inauguration, mm -hmm. which was a really fun way to kind of channel the the tension. Mm -hmm. Sure, so, sure. Yeah, and yeah. that was all improvised as well in the studio. Yeah. And that, I mean, very productive, creative way of channeling energies. And one thing I wanted to, again, we were sort of chatting about this, you know, beforehand, but something you said to me is that you kind of see with improvised music, you see a relationship between law and music, especially improvised music and sort of the rules. And I'm interested in hearing, you know, about your thoughts on that. Sure. When we're doing our improvised sessions, mm -hmm. a lot of people have had experiences in jam sessions and, you know, they kind of just like hang out in a living room or wherever. Sure. One of the, the most frustrating things about those is when people forget to listen under the kind of momentum of wanting to say stuff or play stuff mm -hmm. or express themselves in some way. Right. And the more people you have, the harder it is to have a cohesive idea. 
yeah. to have and and to to hear your own ideas and to hear other people's ideas and appreciate those ideas. So one of the things that we started doing was creating structures in order to kind of channel people's energy yeah. towards a common, I guess, product. Mm -hmm. So one of those, the, the most basic one that we that we would do would be have a leader or a featured musician sure. so that everybody would be listening to them primarily. Okay. So if they changed keys or changed what they're playing or change tempo people would be like oh that person changed we're gonna we're gonna follow along with them <laughs> another thing that we would do is do this thing called 60 seconds where every improvised song would start out silent Ooh. 60 seconds of silence right, at the very end of the song I like that. followed by 60 seconds of just one musician starting sure. it out so they could develop their phrasing their their idea mm -hmm. cleanly mm -hmm. without outside kind of influences right. and then building on top of that one person at a time for 60 seconds so it would be one person for 60 seconds somebody else could join in right. and then it'd be two people for 60 seconds then somebody else could join in it would be three people for 60 seconds and that way you kind of hear people's contributions and you hear how each of the parts fit together so we found that that worked really well We've done we've done uh, several more in kind of similar structures. We've done improvised live soundtracking to improvised discussion. So if it was mm. going to be something like that, we you and I would be talking, sure. and there'd be a band, and they'd be listening to what we have to say. Yeah. And then when something for them clicks, they would start playing music underneath our discussion. And oh, maybe yeah. there would be a musician that would pick up on something that one of us said, and they could they could sing it or repeat it or find a hook or play bass or play drums or whatever underneath our discussion. Oh, wow. So the, th the thing that got, like, that I think that the thinking that led to that mm -hmm. was this idea of law as a, as a tool for, law in the sense of rules, in the, in the sense right. that in this one particular context, the rules that we set are basically microcosms of laws. Yes. Um, it's a similar idea. You're channeling people's energy through the act of restriction. Right. They're saying you cannot play for 60 seconds mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. at the foreground of all these uh, all of whatever you're playing is going to be this conversation like or this is the person that's going to be leading even if somebody else wants to lead in this moment. You're sort of channeling chaos in a way. Yeah, it could I think be chaos. I think that's right. And making it beautiful by putting some restrictions on it. I think I think that's right. Hopefully beautiful. And we you know, and we have those rules in our everyday lives. We have social norms. You know, somebody's speaking, you don't speak over them. Some you know, you you stand a certain distance away from people. Each of those rules kind of people forget those rules when they're in the in the I guess the ecstasy of creation or mm -hmm. the self-consciousness of creation or the, or the, whatever the, the, their reading of the, diff, of the, of the hurdle that the creative process creates for them. And that, that makes a lot of sense because I feel like law tries so much, at least common law, tries to take so much into account of this idea of what the reasonable person would do or what the reasonable person would expect. And that idea, like you were saying of, social norms there's that in music too 
of, like you said, one musician is playing, when does the next musician come in? You know, and I know in, I listen to a lot of jazz and there's definitely, and I don't, it's interesting to hear how that's arranged because I watch and I just see, it seems to be nicely arranged even though it's improvised. And that makes sense, what you're talking about in terms of you have some rules to it and then you play within those rules. Absolutely. And, and, and sometimes, you know, the breaking of the rule is really important. One of the things that, that, that I struggled with in making these rules is one of the underlying, one of my kind of underlying life motivations and definitely one of the primary motivations for after school was to allow as much freedom as possible to follow your own muse, to follow your own like proclivities, your own whatever, the, the thing that's yes. driving you. Yes. To make your own decisions without restriction, not on in written songs. It's not like written songs. It's not like mm -hmm. a performance. It's it. Like an affirmation of faith that the thing that you make spontaneously will be meaningful. I think that's a lovely explanation of what collaboration is, because so many people talk about collaboration, but it's just kind of a a key word, they throw it out there, but that really, that sounds to me like you really have this passion for working with others and creating something out of nothing. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that's like the, the basics of, of our, of our society too, right? You're, you're depending on other people to fill in stuff that you don't find as essential and the things that you find essential, other people are leaving off to the side and leaving to you. There's space for everybody. Mm -hmm. So the, the struggle with that is anytime you set a rule, you're restricting that freedom in some way. Yes. Especially if you're doing it like top down, like this is my thing and I will tell you all how to, how to function within these rules. So I, I was very sensitive about making rules. I was very hesitant to do it. And when I did it, I was relatively at least as a baseline, relatively lax in enforcing those rules. And I, 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 I like that approach. <laughs> I think it's approach that we're lacking in our bigger picture understanding of law. Mm -hmm. That every time that you make a law, every time that you promote a law, you are necessarily undermining or at least making the exercise of freedom more difficult. That's true. That's true. And, and I think that especially given your background, you really can see, you know, on a daily basis, how that impacts people's lives. How does that play out? You I mean, you're ultimately you're at the, if you end up in the courts, you're ultimately at the discretion, first you're at the discretion of a jury. And then if it's up on appeal, you're at the discretion of a judge. And how is that rule or law enforced and how, how does that impact you? And I think as, as we were talking about before, there's a lot of, once you have a rule or a law, there's a lot of inertia to changing it or revising it, even if there are unintended consequences and there are always unintended consequences. Like you say, when you restrict freedom in a certain way, there's the intended consequence and then there's always, always something that's unintended as a result. And you know, I, I agree that there's this need to be thoughtful about how do you 
how do you enforce something? How do you use it? I always say that, you know, because I used to be, um, you know, on the government side. And I always felt that simpler is better. We have enough laws. We have enough rules. Maybe you want to look into enforcing what you have. How many more rules do you really need? But that's more of a life philosophy than anything. It has nothing to do with any job that I've been at. But personally, that's that's how I've seen. That's my experience. Yeah. Going back a little bit to sort of the, the forces that have driven you over your career, tell me a little bit how your career has evolved. So I studied in college, I studied genetics and philosophy. Um, I got a double degree. Uh-huh. Kind of the smart person here. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, uh, I really, I, you know, so my family is, is, uh, is Russian Jewish. We, I came to the States when I was, when I was little, um, when I was five years old. Um, and everyone in my family was a scientist of one kind or another. Science, like chemistry, engineering, mostly those kind of areas. And part of that was like the restrictions in, in Soviet society for Jews. True. Which is interesting because in Soviet society, the humanities were the restricted, high level things that the Soviet society wanted to keep Jews out of. Really? It was, it was my book. I you, didn't realize that. Because you couldn't go into literature or the arts because they were afraid you would have too much influence. Really? I mean, for the most part, they didn't want Jews in college at all. Right. So anyway, so that was, yeah. so the, because of that background, my, there's, I guess, a lot of family desire for me to, to obviously go to college, but mm-hmm. also to study science. And uh, so I studied genetics and I loved philosophy since I was little. I would always think about philosophy, think about things from like an ethical p- perspective. So I studied that also. And the philosophy was super fun. The genetics was less fun. Um, <laughs> I did not. I did not really want to be a doctor or a geneticist. I spent my last year in a lab working with fruit flies. Oh boy! Raising them, making them food in a giant witch's cauldron, like putting <laughs> boil, them in the freezer. Boil, to- all of that. that yeah. Toil and trouble. <laughs> right. All of it. And then like putting putting them to sleep and looking at their eye color and then oh drowning gosh. a whole bunch of them. Oh, no. Just like a year of that. It's just like I don't oh. want to do genetics of any kind. No. So um, <laughs> not that kind. Not anyway. that kind. Yeah. Not with so, fruit flies. My dad, my dad um, went to law school in the States, um, and he was a patent attorney. So I kind of knew about patent law through him. Yeah. So uh, I went to law school. I figured that would be like applied philosophy mixed with some degree of, of science would help me sure. both think about stuff and would help me career-wise. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I went to GW Law School in D.C., I, in my first summer, I interned for uh, my judge at the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is the court that I'm at now. The main court for patent stuff in the country. Uh, um, okay. So just to interrupt yeah. you for a second, what, because people may not know the difference, what was the, the difference between first serving as a um, clerk and then now? Because I know there are lots of different types of clerkships somewhere it's you're an intern in law school somewhere you're a permanent clerk so ha- sure. is it similar is it different when i was in law school i was an intern which is okay. a, a short-term three-month 
almost introduction to the judiciary. It was, I was working with the, the law clerks who were working for the judge. I was working with the okay. judge also, and they would assign me bits and pieces of their work. Ah, okay. And I would do that. And then after law school, I was, um, I graduated and I went to work as a, a full-time law clerk, uh, oh. which was for a year and a half. It was a term, a term law clerk. A position. term law clerk. Okay. Um, and that was the judge and the four of us. And again, the duties for that is preparing the judge for the cases that he's going to hear. Sure. Discussing the cases, kind of like fighting it out for things that are controversial, thinking about what's correct. And then uh, if the judge gets assigned the opinion, has to write the opinion, mm -hmm. um, drafting the, the drafts of it, Got it. With, now, the, with the judge. Did you or do you ever talk with the other clerks about the different cases and how it should go? Or is all it kind of each? Oh, okay. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Like we, the, the best thing about clerking yeah. When, when when I had co-clerks. So so that was, my, sorry, just real quick. That was oh. my term clerkship. Right now I'm a permanent law clerk. Uh. So I came back. I left clerking and uh -huh. then I worked for a while and then I came back. Okay. When there were other law clerks, we would spend three or four hours sometimes just sitting there throwing hypotheticals at, at each other, <laughs> thinking like about, <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. I loved it. It was, it's, yeah. it, it was wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're kind of like, digging in real deep onto the fundamentals of why certain rules are the way they are and what happens if you set this new rule in this case how will it be applied in theoretical situations right it's kind of like the way the law school is taught it's taught through the socratic method mm -hmm. you know and a lot of the the really interesting stuff about the socratic method is well you said this now how does it apply to this hypothetical ridiculous situation Right. Often ridiculous, sometimes Often ridiculous, ridiculous. Yes. Um, yes. situation. Yeah. So that was amazing because you have to think on your feet super quickly and think deeply really quickly, which was beautiful. Yes. So I did that for a year and a half. I loved it. I felt very much a part of like the development of the law. Yeah. My judge is incredible. He's a wonderful boss. So he would subtly teach us mm. the things that were important both to him and to the law wow. the things to be of worry to worry about like mm -hmm. well how will future cases look at this will this language be too broad and people and future judges will feel too bound by something that we didn't intend to say and that was a huge huge part of our review process and our drafting oh, very process very important yeah. um he does sound like a great teacher and a great boss yes absolutely yeah. And then I left that because uh, that it was a year and a half term, okay. which was expected. And almost everybody goes to law firms because they offer these bonuses. Oh, one of the reasons they offer <laughs> these big bonuses to people who clerked to go to help them defray the cost. So you don't get paid as much when you're clerking. Right. So they help right. you. They offer these bonuses to kind of pull in, pull in law clerks. Um, and I went to a giant law firm in New York. Really had a tough time because I felt like I was no longer part of the development of law. I felt like I was in this totally separate mm -hmm. ethical, this this world with totally different ethical standards between yeah. what was the, not just like, not just good, bad ethical, but uh -huh. like, what's the purpose of what we're doing Right. level. Right. So you're going from... Super sort of 
academic and philosophical to very pragmatic, very sort of needs-based at this time, at this moment, what needs to be done. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I had, I had a tough time with that. And I, I didn't have anybody who was, who kindly believed in the, the importance of law. Mm. I was working with people who believed in law as, as a profession Right. Which makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think I also just fundamentally didn't really like the idea of advocating for positions that I didn't necessarily agree with. Right. And 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 that's that can be tough. That can be a struggle if And that again that kind of goes to, you know, pragmatic sort of practice of law versus sort of more philosophical development. And I know that there's that saying wasn't it a saying in law school it was like either you love law school and hate practicing or Hate practicing and love law school. Yes. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and there's def definitely a divide on that. For sure. Yeah. I was definitely in the love law school, did not like practicing. Right. Well. <laughs> um, so I lasted there for a little while. Yeah. And I developed kind of this uh, really intense passion for photography during law school and during the, my clerkship and uh, left the this big law firm, which was a pretty intense, intense decision. I'm sure. I had lots of law firm, law school loans still. Oh, yeah. And tried to do photography. I was doing like event photography and fine art photography, trying oh, wow. to get like shows in different places and sell stuff. Right. Um, and that I did that for, I think, about a year and a half. Well, that's a long time um, to do that for. It was really hard. Um, yeah. And it was a big. It was such <laughs> a big change. It. But I, you know, I had a really wonderful support structure and <laughs> deferred my loans as much as I could, <laughs> and uh, all of that. All that helped. Yeah. Now we're talking here out of Hoboken, New Jersey. Was that nearby that you were doing? I was in New York for the at the law firm, and okay. then when I left, uh, I stayed in New York for a couple months, and then I uh, moved to Jersey City. Oh. And I got pulled to Jersey City because my friend, who I lived with before, wanted to go to Rutgers and have in-state tuition, and he was like, "Let's go look at Jersey City." And I was like, "Okay," so I ended up in Jersey City. So that decision was really fundamental to me. It was like a rejection of the value system of the practice of law. Hmm. Um, at least the value system in, in how I experienced it in big law. Right. Um, right. And, and of course you're, you're not unique in that. A lot of people don't feel like that's the right environment for them. Some people really thrive. Yes. And others, it's not, it's just not the right place to be. And I think that, you know, and we were talking about this before, I think there are places for people in all different types of law or outside of law, you know, but using their legal knowledge and their legal skill and sort of that, like you said, the Socratic method of how to think about situations and how to approach things in this very sort of hopefully rational and logical approach, not always, but, you know, sort of thought process on that. Absolutely. So then once you did the photography and it sounds like at a certain point you said, eh, I've had it, you know, where did you go from there? Um, my dad had a small law firm in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, they were doing mostly opinion work and um, prosecution work for pharmaceutical companies, um, mostly pharmaceutical companies, other companies. Too. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I joined him for, for a little while, um, for a couple of years. And... Um, 
That was pretty cool. So prosecution, patent prosecution is um, trying to get patents for clients. Okay. We've come up with an invention. Please help us get this patent for this invention that we've come up with. Yeah. Um, and that was that was pretty cool. I learned I learned about kind of how 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 that process works, which is not something that I ever really picked up on in any other part of my. Right. Most people don't experience that part of things. No. Um, and you're kind of just like going back and forth by letter with the examiner, huh. saying trying to he, you're you're saying here's our patent and he's saying well that's not valid because a b and c and you're like no that's not right a b and c are not the same or we've described it well enough or things like that it was it's it's a, it's a pretty cool process yeah but it's also really really difficult to work with your family um <laughs> you know, that was that was hard and um i understand that <laughs> yeah so um i i don't think i connected to the to the to the process of prosecution as much. It just didn't, mm -hmm. it didn't seem as, um, again, it was practical. It was very yeah, practical. Yeah, sure. And it didn't seem, I don't know, weighty enough. I, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't feel like I was, I was doing everything that I could do. Yeah. Um, no, understood. So. And it, it is a very specialized sort of niche piece of, it's not even all of patent law, right? It's one particular. One particular yeah part of patent law yeah. and patent law in itself is so specialized. I mean, you have to have some sort of um, technical scientific degree in the, in order to even practice it. Right. I know we were in order to practice it in front of the patent office. Yes. Right. And I remember we were talking about this beforehand. I long time ago, I had the idea of maybe going into patent law uh, when I first went to college and started off with, you know, biology. And, you know, so I, was never as nervous as all the pre-med students because said, I'm never going to be a doctor. And then said, nah, I'm not going to, I'm never going to be a lawyer. I don't, I'm never, I'm not going to need this, you know, in my life, little did I know. But yeah, I mean, you really do need to kind of either have ended up there by chance or have known this when you, when you started off and went to college, which is really? kind of a crazy thought, but. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a cool thing because your, your, your goal is in the end, your goal is to write in words an idea, the application of an idea. Huh. You're 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 you're, cre you're creating boundaries around, similar to how a contract works. Okay. You're creating boundaries around what you're saying is your unique contribution to technology, mm -hmm. and you're trying to describe that in words with a very particular form and structure. Yeah. And it, it's 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 really cool. Um, but while I was doing that, I also got very very involved with this. A wonderful art space in Jersey City um, called 660. Learned about how to build with wood. Started taking music much, much more seriously. Was taking photography pretty seriously then too, incorporating photography into sculpture. Oh, interesting. And then I was lucky, my judge called, my judge was going into semi-retirement. He was becoming uh -huh. a senior judge, oh, which means nice. his workload would drop by significantly. Mm -hmm. After a certain number of years, he was practicing for 15 years or something like that. Sure, um, sure. His workload dropped significantly, and he wanted somebody who he had worked with before to um, be his law clerk. So mm -hmm. before there were four law clerks, then there was, when he became senior, he only got one law clerk. And then there was, was one. And then there was one. Yeah, so, so um, and... Uh, I had told him it was the best job I ever had. My uh, my friend kind of, 
another law clerk that I worked with kind yeah. of mentioned that I, I would love to come back and came back and the rest is history. Yeah. And, I, and I've been there for, uh, for a little over three years this time around too. That's fantastic. And it's a, it's a wonderful job. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. No, you, you can just see it in his face when he talks about it. He's like grinning, you know, when he talks about this and you, folks, you don't see that very often when you, when you talk to a lawyer about, about, uh, <laughs> about their job. So this is clearly the right job for him. Yes, absolutely. And it also allows you to continue to do, it gives you the freedom to do other things in your life that are creative, right? Like the, we were talking about the, um, the after school specials that I love that by the way, because it Thank just you. reminds me of growing up and, you know, what was it? ABC or Disney or something, you know, the after school specials and <laughs> um, more innocent time, you know, <laughs> before law, before law. That's right. <laughs> um, and but one thing I wanted to go back to, because you kind of mentioned it, was um, this project, these projects that you did when you were doing music and sculpture and photography. And I know you did this project on being a lawyer a while ago. So tell me a little bit about that. So uh, the project that I did was called Helga and Carl. It, it started out, the idea behind it started out as find immigrants mostly find Jew find people who were in a similar situation as me which is russian jewish immigrants who pursued professional careers and then left their professional careers in order to pursue some form of art i, I connected with this um with this playwright named ravim gilman who's uh, a really wonderful playwright and a really incredible brainstormer and um we started working on this project I was lucky enough to get a grant from Kojeko, which is uh, an organization that um, funds art projects about the exploration of Russian-speaking Jewish Americans. I kind of pitched them this idea, and they were all really excited about it. The, the project ended up evolving into being a little bit broader than, or significantly broader than, people who were in my situation. It became about, became about two things. It became about finding a link between bridging. So at the time that I was, I was working on this, I had my legal life, which was on one track. Sure. And then I had my art life, which is on another track and they never, the two shall, shall, shall meet. meet. Yeah. And it, the goal of it was to try to find a way to bring the two together through, through art, because I, I had no idea how to even think about bringing it in through law. So apart mm -hmm. from applying legal thinking to how, to the most basic ideas about sure. the art itself. Like, sure. like the fact is nothing in law is, is stable. Everything. If you just look at it from another perspective, shift hmm. everything, like how, whatever rule you want to set, there will always be potential exceptions. That's which is, true. Which is why courts That's are true. always That's very struggling true. with the interpretation of the actual language, the clear language of a statute or a decision and this this unexpected situation that always crops up with everything. Right. So that kind of idea led to this love of interaction. It's and and so all the stuff that I was working on, everything moved through touch. It was it was no static pieces. All hmm. the pieces were in one state, and then you would open them. It would reveal another state. Oh. Like pages of a book. The whole thing was a giant book. Whoa. And Interesting. those pages would also open up in different ways. So you would have 
you know, many multiple states of the same piece, of the same structure, the same idea, but looking at it from different perspectives. So that, that project was called Helga and Carl. So that was one big part of it. Yeah. And the other part of it was everything requires collaboration. The other idea, besides this kind of emphasis on allowing static things to have different states, uh-huh. was um, trying to bridge Helga and Carl, which is Carl was named after Carl Sagan, who was kind of like... My hero. Yeah, kind of like a hero. <laughs> he yeah. was the guy who he, he, he not only like popularized... Um, and made kind of fascinating science to the mm-hmm. to the to the general public. Yeah. Um, he also was the designer um, and kind of mover of the Voyager recording, which was um, a gold record that's on these two the two furthest out space vehicles out in the they're out in the galaxy. They were sent out in the seventies, and he, in each one of them is a giant gold record. On it is inscribed a audio summation of human society. Oh, wow. I didn't know um, about that. Yeah. Inc- incorporating different languages, some pop songs, oh. classical music, jazz, greetings, bits and pieces of poetry, drawings that he designed with other people. He and his wife designed, picked all the music and everything else. Oh, wow. And they designed drawings that were meant to be interpreted without the aid of language about dis- scientific discoveries of human society. Wow. It's, it's an incredible way of thinking. We will send out these things into, with no destination, just out and away. And we will put all of human cultural discoveries onto these, you know, maybe not everlasting, but long-lasting things to be sent out to be understood by hopefully creatures out there somewhere. Wow. That's a very poetic idea to send this sort of oral time capsule into the universe. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. And I think that's, that's exactly what it was. And um, so it was Helga and Carl. So Carl is like the, one bridge between science and art and Helga for me was this arts co-op in 660. That was her name. She was a kind of representation of the creative spirit and you would walk through the representation of the creative spirit to be inside of this book, which joins the idea of art and science in one, in one thing. I love that. So you were sort of art and science law is art and science is book learning is knowledge within knowledge so sort of all these sort of ideas wrapped up yes exactly inside themselves kind of that's exactly right very cool inside when you walk into the book were other smaller books like you said knowledge within knowledge and each of those books was a collaboration between me and another artist Uh, again this idea of that you have of collaboration yep and you and others the other the other part of that is like you the incorporation of other concepts, there's always space for other people's input. There's always space sure. to find ways to mesh things together so that mm-hmm. it's stronger. I like that because it's not a lot of times creative projects are very, in some ways, are very selfish, right? It's just is the expression of me, I, and no one else. 
And I think it's, it's really lovely to hear about, you know, people collaborating with each other, harmonizing, you know, in law, in, in art, um, which can be in, in both of those spheres, it can be hard to, to achieve. It's a lot of teeth gnashing and, and, and heated disputes and, and all kinds of, you know, mental agony involved to get there. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, so I think that's, um, that fits really nicely into kind of what we were talking about before about the role of law. Mm -hmm. Law is supposed to, I think, create harmony out of disparate interests. I'm not sure if we see it that way anymore. When I tell people that to me law is a lot like art, mm -hmm. people look at me funny. Oh, sure. <laughs> and I think that that's strange. They're both fundamentally collaborative endeavors. They're both fundamentally about how people can and should interact. And they both require an enormous amount of energy going towards harmonization. Yeah, and it's an, and that's a beautiful way of talking about the ideal in, in both disciplines. And I think we sort of talked about this earlier. Is you can be creative in law too and not just in the arts. And that's sometimes people don't always realize that because it's more the creativity comes in the sort of academic and philosophical approach and even pragmatic approach. Whereas, and this can be the same in the arts, it's just the expression is different, I think. And it's more similar to, I guess, kind of a marriage of the written word and the spoken word. And then, you know, of course, argumentation, you know, which is obviously fundamental to, to being a lawyer. For you know, sure. the, there, there's their harmonization, but there's also the, the argumentation, which is, is essential to the practice, I think. Totally. And there's, there's different ways of harmonizing, right? And I think right. that's really how you're, it's really what the arguments are in law. It's how, yes. from what perspective will there be harmony? Right. And if you're looking at things from one perspective, maybe there's harmony and another perspective, there's not. Right. And you're trying to sit, you're trying to pull the decision maker towards your perspective. That's right. framing the issue, right? That's the, when they, when exactly. they talk about the lesson that you're supposed to learn from your first year of law school. It's not really contracts, torts, con law, crimpro. It's how to spot the issue and how to, how to look at the issue. It's framing the issue, which is like the very fundamental of what law is. Yes. It's seeing. Yes. Just yes, like, it's just, seeing. just yes. like art. Yes. Yes. That's a wonderful way of putting it is the, the essence, it's the seeing. You're right. Do you get it? Do you feel like you exercise your creative needs through law? I think to some extent, you know, at least for me, that there has to be a balance. That there is the creativity you express in being a lawyer, in framing, in helping others see what, what the issues are mm -hmm. and how to come to a compromise. But then for me, and this is sort of personal, is 
I also have to be creative in other ways. And, you know, of course, this podcast is one way of doing that and of understanding other people's way of seeing the world and seeing the world as a lawyer. And I also do a lot of writing, you know, creative writing. And uh, for instance, I've been working on a chapbook for many years on that incorporates uh, poetry about being a lawyer. Awesome. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I'd like to see that. I, I'm happy to show. <laughs> but so I think there's, and I think this is true for a lot of people when they talk about work-life balance, it's not just the difference between a 95-hour work week and a 10-hour work week. It's do I have the mental space to be creative in my profession and do I have the space to, to do something that's sort of complimentary, I think. Um, and sometimes I think people feel as though that mental headspace has been taken up too much by mechanics and logistics and not, I won't say the bad parts of law, but maybe the parts that are annoying or when you are trying to get somebody to see your point of view, it's not the easiest thing in the world. It is one of the hardest things in the world. To be a good lawyer, you have to be convincing. You know, and the best lawyers I found are not those who hit you over the head with it. It's who are very skillful in helping you understand their point of view. You know, whether it's balanced or not, it's obviously you know, to advocate for their client, you know that, but especially in my line of work, I, and I do mostly transactional now. Um, it's, it's, that's the, the crux of it is, is, is coming to some sort of point where you each understand the other's point of view and can reach some sort of maybe not harmony, but at least a, a, um, you can you can try for some sort of compromise where I always say where neither party comes away super happy, but <laughs> they get there. And that, that's sort of the practical aspect as opposed to the ideal. And I'm definitely, you know, as a transactional lawyer on the pragmatic side. I see that. Um, yeah. And but but to be, you know, to be working for a client, of course, you have to have that utmost in your mind is you can be creative. But at the end of the day, you have to be you do have to be practical because there are deadlines and there's, you know, there, uh, you have to make them feel good about the, uh, the results that they're getting. And there, and there's real value to that, I think. And that, that's part of what helps me feel good about my day job as a lawyer is feeling like I'm really imparting, um, you know, some, some, some real value to them, you know, and, and helping. And sometimes you feel like you've gotten it and sometimes you feel like you don't, but that's, that's the day to day sure. <laughs> struggle, I guess. Yeah. So we're probably getting towards the end of our, our wonderful conversation here. And I want to make sure I ask you, cause I ask it on every story, just the, the, the lighter aspect of, you know, being a lawyer, cause I call it entering the bar. Sure. So do you have any good stories about, you know, entering the bar or? <laughs> yeah. So one of the, one of the, like, so my, my first year of law school, I loved my first year of law school. It was like, it was one of the, the best years of my life. 
I think for two big reasons. One was I loved the, the, the form that law school was taught at. I loved being challenged to come up, to apply some, a pronouncement or an understanding or a perspective to new situations. That was, I love that. It was so, so much fun. Um, and to be challenged by somebody, by really, really smart people was, was amazing. The other awesome part of it was you, you, when you go into, at least at my school, um, when you go to, my school was huge. My school was like 400 something people per class. And they split you up into sections. They split you up into like, almost like houses. And then they split you up into like sections within those houses. So I was in like 2F, which was like (laughs) 12 people who you go to every class with. Yeah. And basically spend 90% of your time with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like the few people from outside of your section who also you connect with in other places. So we had like a, we had a pretty, we had a, like a few traditions, right? Like, I think they stopped this now, but we had Thirsty Thursdays, oh. <laughs> which is like a law school staple. Oh yeah. Which is like, no questions. Like inside the school somewhere in a common area they would just get a whole bunch of kegs and ply the students with, with beer. Okay, that's amazing. We never had that at our law school. Okay. <laughs> that's not, that, that's not, there was no thirsty Thursday. No, we just, we just crossed the street to a bar. Right? Oh, there you go. Um, yeah, so those, those, were, those were kind of fun. It was, yeah. you know, a yeah, yeah, little institutional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we would also go to Trivia Nights, mm-hmm. which was also amazing like that was that was really great yeah. we, we we won a couple times bonding. we were like yeah totally bonding with yeah. these people who you like you're in this totally new world with yes. you're in this totally new world with the same people and they used to tell us in law school like most of you were like academic superstars or stars at least in college mm-hmm. probably in high school probably before that now you come here and you're all competing against each other. You have to like adjust. You have to adjust oh, yeah. adjust your thinking about everything. You're in a totally, totally new, totally new thing. Philosophically, like how you think about the world, socially, how you think about your friendships, like professionally, mm-hmm. in in every way. So going to these like trivia nights was like was a very like a really important like mm-hmm. tradition for us. And I'm sure you were good at the trivia. We were, we were <laughs> yeah. I, I sometimes I'm good and sometimes I'm awful. Oh, you know that's yeah. how it was. Um, <laughs> exactly. We go dancing sometimes. It was just, Ooh, it was just yeah. lovely to have like a, a, a like almost like a a core group. Yes. To experience this mm-hmm. stuff with, and everybody's really different. Like they're it's like yeah. it's amazing. I think this is one of the things that I loved about it. You're with people who you wouldn't necessarily one by one choose to be close to, mm-hmm. but being close to them makes you appreciate them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like the good and the bad of being in high school. If you were in a small high school, I was in a small high school. It's like sort of a cross between like the first year of high school and the last year of high school. Like first year, you're just getting to know everybody. And last year, we were finally like, all right, guys. All right, we're all cool now. 
Yeah, we all grew up together, you know, and like that, that that's kind of right with the yeah. section that you, your first year, you know, you all go out drinking together, you, you bond, you, you know, see each other at your worst, at your best. And, you know, it's definitely a unique experience. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, drinking was a huge part of law school, oh, much yeah. more so than it was for college for me and totally. way more than high school. Totally. It was just like a totally new, just like everything there was drinking at everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. Uh, yeah, agreed, agreed. Why do you think I titled this "Entering well, the Bar"? Yeah, <laughs> it's still true today. You know, um, at least for a lot of the social functions, I I feel like I go to, which is sure. it's, it's not a bad thing, you know. But it's definitely a part of being in the profession. Good or bad, you know. Yeah. Good, bad, and different. <laughs> sure. Go have a drink after this, you know. <laughs> So with that, and another thing I, I ask people is, you know, before we go is, do you have any advice for other people, whether about, you know, following your career path or, you know, sort of integrating arts and in, in, into your life? Would, do you have any words of wisdom for your listeners? I think trust your value system is probably the best advice that I can give to somebody in any of those things, both what the what what the role of what you want law to be in your life, and how you can incorporate other things like art into it. I saw a lot of people who were working in in big law who professed a certain value system, mm -hmm. um, but acted according to a different value system. So, if you're saying like the most important thing for me is family, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but you're at work 95 hours a week um, and you see you never see your family it's hard to say that that's your value system mm. it was really important for me to leave that law firm mm -hmm. because it didn't align with my value systems and it was really scary for me to have a whole bunch of law school debt and not know where I was going to go work it was like a defining moment in my life mm. because not even, not even so much that was the right decision, but in the fact that the value system that I wanted, I aligned my actions with the value system that I wanted. Yeah. I think law can be really beautiful. And I think it's a shame that people don't recognize what a beautiful thing it is. And I think part of that is because of the disconnect between the value system that people who practice law expound and the value system that they actually practice yeah so i would say follow your value system and be okay with it if your value system is is going to be i want to be the best attorney ever i want to be the most successful attorney ever i want to be a household name as an attorney which is almost nobody <laughs> ever there's probably like a handful of people in the history of our country mm. If that's if that's your value system, like, just recognize that's your value system and don't pretend otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's cool, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's, you know. Yeah, I think I think that's you know I think that's good advice. And I'm sorry, so it's so like, it it almost feels preachy. I'm just I no, just, no, no. I asked for advice, and that's I think that is what people struggle with when they get out of law school because you do find yourself sort of remade. In another image, kind yes. of, and they break you down, build you up, as, as the saying goes, and you have to kind of reestablish your balance. You have to first become 
if you're going to stay in law or if you decide to stay in law, you first have to understand what being a lawyer is and understand what it means to practice or not practice and get kind of beyond that foundation because you need a foundation because without that, you've simply gone to law school. But once you sort of get beyond that, understanding where you want to go from there is a struggle. And I think that's very good advice that you gave is understanding what you have and where you're going to go and also understanding, you know, wherever you are in your career path, that it can change, it can evolve. And if you seek to understand yourself, you can find sort of path whether as a lawyer or just using your skills as a lawyer. So I think that that's important to remember. So and I think the skills that you use in law school will always apply. Always apply. Yes, I agree with that. So with that, Alex, you have been an amazing guest. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. And I hope we can hear, hear more of you and for those listeners, um, Alex is, as he said, he is a musician and he has, I think he's working on some records right now. Mm -hmm. we're, work we're working on a, um, a series of live studio sessions. Live studio sessions. Um, for, uh, the group is called After School Orchestra. We did these studio sessions in August at a really glorious studio called SST or Iwi. I-I-W-I-I -I -I in, uh, in Weehawken with this amazing engineer named Billy Perez. A group of people creating music live together in a studio with poetry and jazz and folk and all sorts of lovely influences. So be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout. It sounds amazing. I can't wait to listen. Uh, and there's also the the band uh, Huge, uh, which is Nick and I. Uh, it's y u u g e dot bandcamp dot com. You can hear the, the the album. All right, and I'll post those links on the blog as always. Thank you for thinking about how to incorporate law into your life. <laughs> well, thank you, and this was this is a great contributor to that. So, with that, thank you, and you've been listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash. And that's a wrap. You can always check us out at enteringthebar.com. As a reminder, all opinions on this show are made in our personal capacity and don't reflect the views of our employers. You've been listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash. <laughs>